0: Hello and welcome to CBO Speaks. I'm your host, Donnie Sheeley, and happy to have you with us today. We are joined today by Lisa Frace. She is the Senior Vice President, Chief Financial Officer, and Treasurer at Michigan State University. Hi, hi Lisa. Welcome. Good morning. Let's just go all the way back to, uh, I believe, you started at Penn State University. That's where you went to school. Let's go all the way back there and talk about your journey that led you to Michigan State.
1: Sure. I I hold two degrees from Penn State, uh, an undergraduate degree in health planning and administration, and then a master's of business administration.
0: You didn't go straight into higher ed after leaving Penn State. So talk about what you did once you first uh, left Penn State.
1: Sure. I I entered industry and I first started to work for a chemical company and got some really great experience there. It was a fairly small organization, but one of the really unique things that I, I had experience in was that this was the very first leveraged buyout um, that the, the Carlisle Group out of Washington, D.C. Um, actually executed. And so I was very, very much um, uh, supporting of that. I was the assistant treasurer of the company at the time and learned an awful lot, both about uh, debt financing, liquidity, asset management, uh, all of those kinds of things.
0: So once you left, how long were you in that industry?
1: So I was there for seven years, and uh, I left that role and moved to uh, a different industry. I I worked for Adidas USA for about two years and was the treasury manager there. The first 25 years of my career was spent in either treasury or uh, increasing business-related functions. I was the treasury manager there and really helped them set up some banking relationships, establish a number of budgeting practices. The headquarters were moving, and I had personal reasons for for not needing to um, move to the new location. I left Adidas USA, and I moved to Amtrak. And I uh, started in treasury at Amtrak um, and had a number of roles. I was there for 12 years including being a regional CFO and uh, serving a, a short period as the interim CFO for the company.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So what made you transition into um, higher ed?
1: I had a number of colleagues and, and in fact, someone that I considered a, a mentor who had moved into higher ed. And I had spent an awful lot of time uh, talking to them about the the values and benefits uh, of moving to higher ed. One of the things that really a, me to higher ed and that keeps me in higher ed is the ability to change lives. I myself was a Pell Grant recipient, and I know that my trajectory in life was so substantially changed by my ability to access higher education. And I really believe that it it is the one thing that doesn't depreciate our education, our, our knowledge, our learning doesn't, depreciate. And it's something that, in fact, appreciates over time.
0: Is Michigan State the first higher ed school that you went to?
1: No, uh, I've been in higher ed now for um, for almost 20 years. Uh, When I left Amtrak, I went to Arizona State University. And I went to Arizona State University as the associate vice president and chief budget officer. And really uh, learned an awful lot about higher ed, uh, finance functions, uh, thinking about how to um, not only think about how the resource allocation happens, but what the impact from those resource allocations are on the outcomes for our financial statements. I like to joke that I think in Matrix when someone asks, asks me, how will this affect us, I think about the sources and uses the way one might think about managing the institution internally. But then I also try to translate that into how does that impact our audited financial statements, our operating statement, our balance sheet. Um, So I actually do joke. I like to think in matrix.
0: (laughs) I like that. So after um, you were there, then where was your transition after that?
1: I spent uh, a little over two years at University of California, Davis, uh, and there I had a, a slightly broader expanded role. In addition to the budget functions, I, I had oversight for accounting and accounting procurement and, and, and some related functions. I effectively um, was the um, chief finance and budget officer reporting into the vice chancellor there. And then the opportunity for Michigan at Michigan State University presented itself. When I saw the job description, it was, it was almost as though someone had used my resume to write the position description. It just aligned so well with my experience. Their needs aligned and I threw my hat into the ring and obviously it was successful. Michigan State University is such a fantastic institution with a long history, really proud of our land grant history. Uh, We were the first land grant in in the country. We date back to 1855, and we're very, very proud of that relationship to the agricultural community, but also to really advancing knowledge and discovery.
0: Talk a little bit more about the land grant opportunity. That's pretty historic. Give us a little bit more insight on that.
1: The institution was 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 founded in 1855. Uh, it is it was uh, one of the first to be designated as a land grant, but we were really the model for many of the land grant institutions that were developed. The Morrill Act was in 1862, and so really we were very very young at that point in time. But we were also became we also became the model for for how to think about integrating. Agricultural support for the in support support for the state into learning and really providing that service back to the state.
0: So, how long have you been at Michigan State? First of all, and then talk about everything or you know what you're responsible for in your role.
1: So, I've been at Michigan State University for a little over two and a half years, uh, and I'm responsible for the finance functions at uh, at MSU including accounting, student services, tax, budget and planning, treasury, contracts and grants accounting. Um you know so really it is it is a uh, the typical finance suite but really there is integration along many many peers at at, at MSU. Um, I like to think of myself as a strategic partner and really think about how to accomplish things in a smart financial way.
0: So what would you say you spend most of your time working on during a typical day for you?
1: You know, since since the pandemic it's Zoom meetings. <laughs> and it's unfortunate because one of the things that we had prior to the pandemic was transition time between meetings and you could really think through what you had just talked about and have time to as you move to your next meeting really think through the next steps and and so that winds up being pushed to the end of the day, unfortunately. But really in terms of the functional areas, it, it can be any number of things. We may be looking at budget activity. We're in the process of implementing a new budget system and ultimately with a with the goal of putting in place a new budget model. We um have some very innovative programs going on in Treasury and so we're uh on the cutting edge in, in one particular program, which I can talk about in a little bit, but um you know it might be in, in that arena, it may be with my peers uh in in the you know president's council, really understanding some of the issues and providing feedback. There is not a typical day.
0: It's it varies, I'm sure, from day to day which piece of the pie you're focused on, I'm sure. So that's a really good point about the Zoom meetings, because I never really thought about that. And being going from one to the next and not being able to process what you just, you know, accomplished and kind of having to wait to the end of the day. I've never heard anyone really mention that, but that is a a big um, issue that can be. Um, doing back-to-back. So I'm surprised that you all are still doing that. So are you all ever going to come back together? Is this something that they're like, you know what, we love the Zoom meetings?
1: A number of us are still on on campus. I'm on campus almost every day. Michigan State University, though, did uh, develop a a fairly um, robust hybrid remote work policy and, uh, you know, want to really support making sure that we've got the best uh, faculty, students, staff, and are able to retain them. You know, clearly there are roles that must be on campus, and, and they are, but others, you know, can certainly be done um, in a hybrid fashion. One of the reasons I think we do so much uh, Zoom work is that we are a huge campus. We have over 5,200 acres, and the sheer um, need to move around campus to physical meetings really does impinge on time. And so I think very often we're doing some of these Zoom meetings really to save on some of that movement. And it's just become part of the the, the the typical way to do business.
0: So talk to me a little bit about what you would consider your sweet spot, though. What is it? I know you said your resume kind of matched what you're doing there. So what are some of those key things that, you know, you're like, this is my area. This is what I really strive and and thrive in?
1: What I would say is it really is thinking about things very strategically and thinking about how to get things done, not necessarily always saying no. You know, sometimes that has to be the answer, but uh, there are times where we really do need to think about what either the question we are trying to answer is or what we are trying to accomplish. And one of the things I've found over my career is you'll have um, colleagues come to you and say, I need to do this this way. And maybe um, the way they're suggesting just isn't feasible, but there might be another way. And helping to get to that so that you can continue to really drive the institution forward is, is one of the most critical things a CFO can do as a strategic partner to the provost, to the other vice presidents um, on campus.
0: And talk to me a little bit about the city, East Lansing. I mean, you all are a huge, as you stated, um, university. Talk about your partnership with the city. I'm sure uh, you have to do a lot of things working with the stakeholders in the city. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, that's something that I get a little. I'm, I'm a little bit less directly involved with, and and, and much more behind the scenes, uh, you know, uh, as as a partner to both our government affairs group and to, and frankly, our police.
0: Okay, okay, because I know that I'm sure you all are probably a good financial piece of the community, though there in the in the city. So as you talk to us about moving from. You were working in corporations, Amtrak and Adidas, and then you moved to higher ed. What do you say, what what, what could you say were some of the big changes that you noted as you moved into higher ed, if you had to compare the two?
1: In terms of of higher ed finance, it, it is more complex than anything I've ever seen. Um, you know, really just because you need to think about tracking and managing funds at a very, very discreet level so that you can ensure that you're using those funds in the way that whomever provided those funds intended. So, for example, donor gives a, a gift. You, you need to make sure you're complying with donor intent. Contracts and grants accounting. You need to deliver on whatever that contract or grant is. The same thing with housing and dining revenues. You need to use those revenues to pay the cost of housing and dining and so it really is is a whole lot of very, very small businesses all wrapped into one. Corporations don't do that it 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 is a single set of revenues they don't they don't track by fund or by even discrete use. On the other hand, I was able to bring some fairly standard practices in 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 uh in the corporate world into my first role in higher ed and the funny thing about that is you know I'll use one as as an example, just the um, approach to budgeting and then periodically forecasting and having a feedback loop was not something that was common practice in higher ed when I entered higher ed in, in the early 2000s. And I didn't really think it was revolutionary until I was at a conference. It was a Nakubo conference, and I heard... Uh, another institution reporting on doing uh, something that was similar. They were in development and the number of questions and and feedback in that room was pretty pretty telling. And I thought, I did this five years ago.
0: Mm, Yeah. Uh,
1: I just didn't know that I needed to go out and talk about it. And so that's one of the things I think that's very different about higher ed is we are incredibly good. At sharing and really being willing to help other higher ed institutions with problems. Um, because we're not all unique in terms of all of the things that we're experiencing. And very often there's someone who has seen something and, and been able to come up with a solution that others might be able to benefit from. And it's one of the real values that that Nakubo and the regional Akubos bring to, to our members.
0: So talk to me about some challenges. Maybe there was a time in your career where you had a, a, a lesson, and you kind of, you know, learned the hard way. But you, if you had to do it again, you would, have, you would have done it a little differently. Is there something that stands out when, when I say that?
1: I, I think probably un- really understanding better. The, the nature of shared governance and 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 not underestimating the need to make sure that faculty and staff, frankly, have input into decision making. I had a project at one point that we moved forward with. We did consult, perhaps not as broadly as we should. And I build that into everything I do now.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Shared governance. I, I hear that a lot.
1: The faculty and the provost are incredible partners. And what I like to try to remind uh, my team is that our roles exist in support of the mission. And the mission is education, it is research, and it is public service. Uh, Everything else is really done in support of those three pillars of our mission.
0: We're not siloed. We're working together. So, talk to me about mentorship you 've been doing this for quite some time, so talk to me about some of the mentors that you've had along the way that really pushed you and helped you uh, to be where you are today and Then talk to me about how you're reaching back because I know that you've had you have vast experience, and I know that you have some sort of succession plan in place i 'm sure. Hopefully, and that uh, you are reaching back and mentoring others. So let's just talk a little bit about mentorship.
1: You know, I think mentorship uh, evolves over time. You know, I can think about each, each um, organization I was in and how, uh, even if it wasn't a formal mentorship uh, relationship, there, there was always an ability to learn and sometimes it was formal and sometimes it was informal but i think one of the things that uh, is critical is is identifying really the the qualities that you're looking to develop in your own career and identifying those people who exhibit those qualities and can help you really shape your own your out your own outcomes. And I think that's critical. One of the things as I got into higher ed, and and I I would say I delayed just a little bit after having got into higher ed, but I, I did become extraordinarily active in Wakubo. And a number and because I was out West. And a number of the colleagues in Wakubo really did serve as real role models and really helped me to really think through and pave the path of my own career development. I also had many opportunities to learn to do many things that I never would have done in the university setting. You know, so for example, I was very active in helping to deliver on professional development programs. And I had to book speakers and I had to you know, take think through venues. I never would have thought to do that. And yet it has served me well. Just some of those event planning and, and contract management skills have, have really served well in many other ways. And I still value those friendships and those relationships, and and that has you know also is, is true within um, Nakubo, and and it's always lovely to go to the annual conference and see folks I haven't seen in a, in a year, but you know it it's, doesn't matter that it's been a year. We uh, we really enjoy um, reconnecting.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's great commercial for Nakubo. <laughs> so that was awesome. And so talk to me about, you know, your mentorship and how you're reaching back to others and who are you? How do you get the next person ready that's coming up in the ranks?
1: There there are a number of ways that I've done that. Frankly, both in, in the professional organizations where a need was identified, I became known for being able to identify someone who might be able to fill a role and and recruit people into key positions. But also within my own organization, one of the things that I I, uh, strongly stress and I've really started to drive since I've been at MSU is really uh, encouraging professional development at all levels, Uh, this should not be something that is reserved only for the most senior people. I am very proud of the fact that in the last two years since I've been at at MSU, uh, we have started to have, uh, staff members apply for programs at, um, at Nakubo and have been successful in each. We've had a Nakubo fellow. We've had now two emerging leaders and we also have had some, some Pretty nice recognition for the institution itself through Nakubo. The other thing, which is a little bit less formal, is really identifying staff members who have some fairly strong skill sets, but maybe in a fairly narrow role and finding ways to give them assignments that provide development outside of that role so that when the opportunity comes for advancement, they're ready. And I think that's really critical. And one of the things that happens when you do that is that the staff members very much appreciate it. They're more likely to stay because there's engagement But if an opportunity comes along outside of the institution and it is really the right opportunity for them, I will help them be successful in getting to that role because in the end, uh, higher ed is such a large, small community and the networking that happens is pretty incredible and it just expands the network of not only Michigan State, not only me, but of, of, of the person entering whatever that role is.
0: Great. I also want to mention that Lisa received the Rising Star Award from Nakubo in 2017. So we definitely want to highlight that. That's awesome. So yeah, I, I love how you are mentioning the the things that Nakubo and Wakubo can can offer. And um, I think that's a really good a good point. So let's talk about the future. What is your take on the future of higher ed?
1: I think there's so much interesting work that we've got going on. I mentioned the, you know, the budget model redesign, and I do have some fairly deep expertise in, in budgeting, but we've also brought on a team that, uh, really does have that expertise. So I'm, uh, not in the day to day on that. One of the other things that we're doing that I think is incredibly creative and I'm very excited about and was underway when I, I got to MSU, but really I have um embraced it and we're moving it forward, is looking at issuing the municipal bonds, tax-exempt municipal bonds, using native blockchain technology. And we are very close to being able to do that. We are thinking, and we've presented on this at, at Nakubo and, and some other um, conferences, and so th- it's not a secret. Uh, We do think it's probably early next calendar year. We're getting that close. But we will be the first uh, organization in the country to do this. And so there are many hoops that you jump through when something is brand new like that. I liken it to back probably 40 years ago when bonds were issued Physical bonds were printed and delivered to a trustee who put them in a safe and then, you know, then they were just redistributed as they were bought and sold. And eventually that made way to an electronic recording, but it's basically a a ledger recording that is done. This will, that is the next iteration in that journey. Uh, I've been asked the why. Why are we doing it? Well, it really is the wave of the future. It is the likely way that bonds and securities will be transacted in the future. Europe and Asia are already doing it. And so we really do think it is the wave of the future. We are working on risk mitigation. We've chosen a relatively small but innovative project to demo this um, so that it really doesn't become a very large dollar issuance, um, you know, in the whole scheme of things, it's about a $38 million issuance. And that's a fairly small issuance as our issu- issuances typically go. We're usually in the hundreds of millions of dollars because we try to leverage scale and we we don't do it very often. But we did want to mitigate risk along a number of, of avenues by by thinking through what those things might need to be. So pretty excited about that.
0: Yeah, that is exciting. That's very exciting.
1: The other thing that was really interesting about this project and really how it aligns with the mission of the institution is it originated from uh, a, a group of faculty, students and staff coming together about five years ago and thinking about blockchain technology as it was starting to become known, and and how uh, MSU could think about it. And one of the first things that happened was that there were some uh, components of coursework that started to focus on blockchain, what it was in the business school, blockchain, what it was, how it might be used in the future. But then this same advisory group quickly identified that um, issuing bonds through a a reputable financial institution would likely be the next most likely application for the use of blockchain technology. And so we've had students, faculty, and staff advising us along the way, even as we issued RFIs and other things. The students established the Spartan Blockchain Club. Several of those students have gone on to get very interesting jobs because they were involved. And so it really then does loop right back around to our mission to really evolve knowledge and to support students through learning and, and serving our state.
0: That's awesome that they started the club. That's really good. So, are there any final points you want to make as we close out and, you know, talk about something, any other things that you see for yourself on the horizon?
1: Uh, well, I think, you know, if you don't mind, I'm going to loop back to, you know, uh, where the future of higher ed is. With regard to the future of higher education, we're really at a crossroads, and we know that the political winds are, are really tough at the moment with the price of, of, of education, although folks tend to focus on the sticker price and not necessarily the true cost of, of attending, but also whether or not a a degree uh, is worth the, the, the cost. And I, I clearly see that my trajectory in life changed because I received my two degrees. But I think we have to think about how we address that, how we evolve, and we will need to be nimble, creative, and really think about being flexible. Uh, what we've done in the past can't continue to be what we do in the future any any industry that uh, stays in its past won't really be particularly successful now that doesn't mean we can't honor our past recognize our past and celebrate it but what we need to do is take the best of our past and really be always looking and scanning into the future to see what kinds of technologies what kinds of changes what kinds of political changes we need to address. Um, so that we can really then address the concerns of, of our constituencies.
0: Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you sharing with us, sharing your path and sharing your knowledge, your wealth of knowledge with us today.
1: Well, thank you. I was really pleased to be with you.
0: For sure. And we want to thank you all for joining us today for this episode of CBO Speaks, brought to you by the National Association of College and University Business Officers. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of research and tools at NACUBO.org. Make sure you subscribe to CBO Speaks wherever you get your podcasts, and so that you can get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Lisa Frace, from Michigan State University, I want to thank you for joining us on CBO Speaks. I'm Donna Sheely. Be well. CBO Speaks is a production of the National Association of College and University Business Officers. Audio engineered by Andy Nelson and True Story FM. Music by Michael Bean. Post-production support by Janelle Dempsey. And I'm your host, Donna Sheely.